Hey y'all, and welcome back to another episode of the Cult Cinema Circle Podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. Now, on today's episode, we're going to be covering a little movie from 2009 um, that's celebrating its 15-year anniversary this month. Um, It's a little movie called Coraline. And so, my history with Coraline is... I remember when the book came out, I guess, because I was like 10 when that came out. Um, But I never read it because I really... I'm horrible, but I'm not really much of a reader. Um, But, you know, it would have been a book I probably would have read, you know, because it was kind of targeted to my age demographic, if anything. But I never watched it, though. And... uh, Or I never read it, really. But, like, um, then the movie came out in 2009 when I was in high school. And so I was like, okay, cool. Like, that's fine and dandy. And so... um, But I didn't go see the movie or anything like that. You know, wasn't wasn't planning on it. Wasn't doing that. Um, And so... It's funny, it wasn't really until maybe, oh gosh, like um, probably middle of 2010s, uh, former guest of the show, Barbie, hey Barbie, um, and her her daughter, Tasha, hey Tasha, Um, but like uh, they were, um, Tasha is, I don't remember when she was born, but you know, she was like a younger kid, um, you know, probably, she's just a young kid, and so, uh, but at some point or another, she actually watched Coraline at some point. And um, I don't know if Barbie liked that a whole lot, uh, you know, but whatever. Things happen. I mean, you've heard on the show plenty of times of movies I probably shouldn't have watched when I was a kid, but I definitely did. Um, but so I was kind of like, I remember that at least, or like having that experience of like, oh yeah, it's that movie like Tasha enjoys kind of, or whatever. And you know, she's, she's going to be a little horror fan. I know it. So I'm, I'm ready for it. But anyway, uh, but no, I, I, um, but then I finally last year, I decided to just throw on the movie. It was on max. Um, it's still on max right now, I think. So, um, or if you're in like Canada, it's on Netflix or, you know, it comes on Netflix every so often in the States. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's around, but I, uh, I threw it on and I really, I truly, really enjoyed myself with it. I really, I enjoyed it. And I think the stop motion animation really lends itself for like the, you know, dark fantasy of it all. Um, I don't really know how they would have done this live action. So I'm glad that they did it in stop motion. Um, we'll talk about that as well, but like, yeah, I, I really liked it. And, um, I, I just thought, why not cover it? You know, I, I'm no stranger to a book to movie adaptation, so we'll talk about that. But like, you know, I also think this movie it, it did do well financially and and all that. But I do think just because it is kind of this offbeat movie, you know, I, I wanted to just cover it because why the hell not? Um, and it does have that little niche of like being a quote kid-friendly horror although is it really kid-friendly i I guess it's not like a pg-13 movie right but i definitely think like um not that i'm a a, not that i'm a parent or anything or not that i'm an expert on children but i uh (laughs) but i don't know i mean this is still kind of scary honestly like but you know whatever it's all good but i want to celebrate this movie uh, of course not every movie is perfect um or anything like that but um of course i like to celebrate these movies or or talk about things that talk about movies i like and um i'm sure i'll also have movies i don't like that i'll cover too or that i was just like man this is okay um but uh 
But without further ado, let's move into a little bit about the figures of this movie. We'll get into some production history, talk about the book a little bit, uh, and all that good stuff that you come for. Let's move on to these figures. So Coraline was released February 6th, 2009. So that is 15 years ago, um, which just makes me shudder. But, you know, uh, it's about 100 minutes. So hour 40, not too bad. Um, and it was distributed by Focus Pictures or Focus Features. Um, and we're looking at a budget of about $60 million. Um, so then in terms of the box office of this film, um, the opening weekend ranking gross was um at number three with 16 million eight hundred and forty nine thousand six hundred and forty dollars it then it ended up making seventy five thousand eight hundred and sixty two thousand two hundred and twenty nine dollars so made quite a bit more money and then internationally it made about forty nine million three hundred and ten thousand six hundred and eight dollars for a worldwide gross of 124 million five hundred and ninety six thousand $837. So needless to say, I think this movie did pretty well um, financially, which is great. And what's nice is that, you know, um, this movie does not really lend itself for a sequel like that, but I'm glad it was just kind of a standalone because with money like that, obviously there could have been some sort of weird, like, you know, franchise, but Coraline itself did not warrant a franchise. So I'm glad that didn't happen because you already know sometimes sequels are a little touch and go um, in terms of the critical response of this movie. Uh, we're looking at 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is certified fresh uh, from about 272 reviewers, um, so critics and stuff, and then a 74% for audience score um, on there from about 250,000 um, plus reviews. And then the voice of the people, 4.1 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So needless to say, I think the overwhelming consensus is that this movie did well financially it actually did pretty well critically um so is it a cult film again i go back to that it is a just kind of off the beat movie you know and also i do think that stop motion animation in general already kind of lends itself to have that kind of cult flavor just because like there is this like there's not a ton of like stop motion movies that happen so i'm always kind of looking at these things and i do think that Coraline does have a little bit of this cult following or just people who really love it too so that's why i felt like covering it um so with our director we have henry selick so henry selick for those who are not in the know, although I don't know how you wouldn't be in the know, but uh, he is the gentleman who actually directed The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, I already covered this on my episode about The Nightmare Before Christmas, but he is the guy who directed it. Um, so literally he did. Uh, Tim Burton produced that movie, but he did not actually direct it. That was Henry Selleck. He also did Wendell and Wild as well, um, which is a recent movie on Netflix. I haven't watched it yet, but I do want to watch it. Um, he also did James and the Giant Peach back in the day, back in the 90s. Um, and he did uh, Coraline, obviously. He also did the movie Monkey Bone with Brendan Fraser. So that's kind of fun, um, which was also kind of like... Uh, I haven't actually seen that movie. I'd probably be perfect on the show, but like, um, yeah, that's kind of cool. Well, that's what Henry Selleck did. Um, and so that's what he has gone to do. And he's a King among Kings. Um, we then have the, 
Uh, writer of this movie was also Henry Selleck. So in terms of him writing, I mean, he also wrote, let's see, what did he write? Um, actually, yeah, no, he wrote Coraline and Wendell and Wilde. So he wrote those movies at least. Um, so that's cool. Um, and so, um, but the original writer of the book is Neil Gaiman, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Neil Gaiman, um, is just like, um, obviously a writer in general, but he, um, also wrote like stardust good omens um he like helped write those things um in terms of movies and stuff like that too um a a lot of his stuff was really more so just like things he'd already written in book form so nothing too crazy but he also did a beowulf movie that's kind of fun but yeah so that's what he did um so it's a little bit about the writing of the film. Uh, in terms of composers, we have uh, Bruno Colais, I guess, is his name. Um, in this situation, he also... Let's see what else he wrote, or let's see what else he scored. There's a lot of visual effects people on this movie, obviously. So, But he actually did... He has worked with him before, so he's done Wendell and Wild with Henry Selleck before. But he also did... I don't even know if I know any of these movies, so it's kind of fun. He did a movie called Wolf Walkers, which is like an animated movie. Um, Song of Sea, which is another animated movie. Um, yeah, it looks like he's done a lot of, like, he's a French composer. Oh, okay, so he's French. Um, and so, yeah, he's kind of made a little name for himself with, like, doing, I guess, like, animation stuff as well, which is really cool. Um, and also... Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know anything about that. So, huh. but yeah, he got and ended up doing this movie. He did a thing called Winged Migration, um, which was about traveling birds that are migrating south. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. But yeah, that's maybe why you haven't seen him do a lot of um, maybe American stuff because he is French. But uh, yeah, he seems like an interesting cat. That's cool. And then the editor of this movie, we have two editors. So we have uh, Christopher Murray and then Ro- Ronald Saunders. Um, so those are our editors of the film. For Christopher Murray, he also did this movie, but he also did Paranorman. And he also did Kubo and the Two Strings um, as well. So probably Coraline and Paranorman are like his most well-known things that he did. Um Ronald Sanders also did. Oh, but there are also some two other people that I missed. Um, so Margaret Lily Andres, which she only really did this movie and like two other ones. Um, and then Anthony Pitone, and he actually did um, Ice Age 4 Continental Drift. Um, but Ronald Sanders is kind of the prolific one, if anything, because his editing includes this film. He also did The Fly from David Cronenberg and Videodrome. Um, he did Scanners. Looks like he worked with Cronenberg quite a bit. Um, yeah, it looks like he's David Cronenberg's editor. So, which is interesting because there is this like interesting kind of. I think that's probably where that vibe comes from in a way, because even though this guy obviously did a lot of like fucking body ass horror movies, you know, um, it's cool that he was also able to edit this movie as well. Um, so I thought that was really, really interesting. I'm trying to see if there's anybody else in particular for, you know, the, um, the crew that we can 
point out. I guess um, Bill Mechanic was another one of the producers of this movie. He actually did, um, he produced Hacksaw Ridge and the remake of Dark Water for um, the US, starring Jennifer Connelly. And then Claire Jennings was another one who also produced the movie. Um, she was also part of like Wallace and Gromit and stuff. So she did like the curse of the were rabbit. Um, so she kind of came from, from that as well. Mary Sendell was another one who was a producer, but she didn't really have a whole lot of other big producing things. A lot of her stuff was more stop motion, if anything. So there's all that. There really isn't anything in terms of like other, notable folks to point out on the crew um but those are kind of our big ones and then our cast includes uh dakota fanning so obviously child star dakota fanning um she's been in i mean i am sam and she was in like some twilight movies and she was in once upon a time in hollywood uptown girls like every fucking thing ever um so it also has a sister al fanning um love that for her and so yeah i mean doing all the things and I'm, I'm happy for dakota fanning if anything it's cool that she's been able to have an interesting life um and be able to like relatively be unscathed it seems like so i really appreciate and like that for her so there's uh there's her then you also have terry hatcher who plays the other mother but also just Coraline's regular mother um and so of course she is from mostly well known for her role in Desperate Housewives and for anybody else who's a little older from like the 90s she is uh, Lois from uh, Lois and Clark um, The New Adventures of Superman with Dean Cain in her so but Desperate Housewives is probably the the big one that people know her for Um, so a lot of people know her for this and also Spy Kids she was in Spy Kids as well Um, she hasn't done a ton of like movies you know that people know about really like that um i think more so she's been more of a tv person which there's nothing wrong with that um we also have uh john hodgman who plays uh her dad Coraline's dad also the other father um he is um like an actor author and humorist um and a lot of what he's done he worked on like um pitch perfect 2 he did like he was part of movie 43 which is like that really horrible movie uh baby mama with um tina fey and amy poehler um it's not like he's a huge actor or anything i think this is probably one of his most well-known things he's much more of an author if anything um he's done a lot more writing of anything like that We then have kind of a duo, which is fun, Um, but we have Jennifer Saunders and Dawn French, also known as Saunders and French. Uh, For those who don't know, I'm not going to go deep into it, but Saunders and French uh, are a comedy duo that's been around for a minute um, in England. Um, These two friends who, you know, uh, well, actually, they weren't friends at first, I don't think, but they became friends in college um, and they had their comedy duo that was happening. And then one of them, actually, both of them have had successful careers, uh, you know, by themselves. But Jennifer Saunders went on to literally create and star in in a show called Absolutely Fabulous, which was a real big hit in the UK. Um, and with also the gays as well. So, but they play the, uh, 
downstairs neighbors uh april sprink is jennifer saunders and then miriam um forcible is don french jennifer saunders has been in um she's had some voiceover acting so she's done like um she was in shrek 2 she was in minions um she's also in spice world funny enough she's the one where um she's like the pretentious like fashion person at the fashion party that they go to and Paul's just talking to her and she says what do you think of manta rays and then it's just like, oh, she's so funny in it. It's hilarious. Um, that's Jennifer Saunders. We like her. And then Dawn French, um, she's been in, like, she was in, like, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, apparently. Um, both her and Jennifer were in Death on the Nile, um, the remake that they made. Um, she's had a whole little, you know, little career as well, uh, which is cool. So we also got to talk about the man the myth the legend mr keith david is in this movie he plays the cat in this movie he's iconic of course i mean keith david star of like the thing the princess of the frog playing dr facilier he was in nope in the beginning he's in this movie He is in requiem for a dream i mean can i go on like we fucking loved keith david in this house um his voice is so sexy. Oh my God. Like he's just an iconic man. Um, and also just like his voiceover career has been really cool too. So yes, please check out Keith David, like period. He is, is so good. And he's great in this movie. The cat is such a great um, character in this movie. Then we have Ian McShane who plays the upstairs neighbor, uh, Sergei, uh, Bobinski. Uh, so he is actually, uh, an English actor. He's a British actor. He was in, um, some of the John Wick movies. He's been in like all of them. It looks like he was also in Shrek the third. He was in like uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movie. It was the, um, on stranger tides one, which was one of the later ones. He was in Kung Fu Panda. He's just, kind of been all around um so that's kind of cool you know good for him um so yeah it's kind of fun and then robert bailey jr um he plays yb um so Wyborn, but he is yb he has gone on he's actually it's kind of cool because um he is actually a person of color and both him and his grandmother are like kind of uh animated to be kind of the only people of color in this movie um so it's cool that he is also portrayed by somebody who is also of the culture. Um, but he was in, uh, the happening, uh, not a very good movie apparently, but he was also in bubble boy. He's had like a few things here and there. Um, but I think this is probably his most well-known role. Um, I think he does a good job. Does a great job. And so, yeah, I'm trying to see if there's anyone else to kind of point out. Not really anything too crazy uh, in regards to that, except also Other Father is... in, uh, so, like I said, John Hodgman is his speaking voice, but his singing voice that we hear at least once or twice is by John Linnell, and for those who, who in an uncredited role, but for John Linnell, um, for those who don't know, he is one half of the duo of They Might Be Giants. So, which it's so funny because he has a very distinctive voice when he sings. So, if you've ever heard any They Might Be Giants songs, you know that it's him, but there's that. But yeah. So that's a little bit about the cast and the crew of this movie um, we can talk about. Um, but let's move into a little bit about just like the how this film got made and, and all that good stuff. We'll talk about that. But before that, we do have to talk a little bit about Mr. Neil Gaiman. So he is a British author. Um, 
and he actually started writing Coraline in 1990. Um, so he himself is, he was about 30 when he started writing it. Um, a lot of his stuff, he ended up doing comic books like uh, The Sandman. He also did the novels Good Omens, Stardust, American Gods, this book, Coraline, and all of that. But yeah, he has... I mean, really, there's nothing too much to talk with him about. I mean, he went to a couple different schools. Um, actually, fun little thing, too, about Neil Gaiman. His father's position um, as a public relations official for the Church of Scientology um, <laughs> was the cause of the seven-year-old Gaiman being forced to withdraw from one of his schools and return to the school which he had previously attended. So that's kind of interesting. Um, and so kind of weird that he came from like scientology i wonder if he's like an actual like legit scientologist i'm looking this up now just to see Eh, it doesn't look like there was i don't know maybe he just grew up in it and maybe he got out of it perhaps i guess yeah i don't i don't think he's like a i don't know Uh, tell me if he is a scientologist i guess unless i'm wrong but it looks like he might have just like literally his parents might have just done that but which for a couple of different people um that's how it worked <laughs> which is weird but he started off um really that he started off with um he actually um pursued journalism doing like interviews and writing book reviews um he started doing that so he actually started off as a journalist which is cool um and Apparently, while waiting for a train in 1984 in London, um, he noticed a copy of Swamp Thing by Alan Moore. Alan Moore, if you don't know, he's the guy who did Watchmen. Um, He carefully read it. Um, His fresh and vigorous approach to comics had such an impact on Neil that he then later wrote that, quote, this was the final straw. Um, What was left of my resistance crumbled, and he proceeded to make regular and frequent visits to um, Forbidden Planet, which, for those who don't know, Forbidden Planet is a bookstore that is in um, London to go and buy comics. So he wrote his first book, um, which is a biography of uh, the band Duran Duran. Um, And, you know, he decided to get into trying to also write some books as well. Um, And so what ended up happening from that is that uh, he pretty much was like not going to be a journalist anymore. It looks like because, um, British newspapers regularly, uh, published untruths as fact. So he didn't want to be a part of that, I guess. And so, um, he actually wrote the opening, um, after this, he wrote the opening to a comic novel, um, called good omens, which then ended up turning into the novel good omens, of course. Um, but yeah, but the big thing you need to know about him, I'm not going to go, this isn't all about Neil Gaiman, but like he started writing Coraline in 1990, but he didn't really, it seems like he was writing a lot of his books around that same time as well. And so if anything, he started writing it then, but it did not get released until, um, he didn't get released until, uh, 2002, uh, probably really, I don't want to give anything to JK Rowling because she's a turf and she sucks. Um, but I mean, also like, you know, when you have something like Harry Potter that hit that big, uh, you know, I think dark fantasy seemed to be something that, you know, was 
could be shown that it would be in vogue, right? So having someone like Neil Gaiman, who was already kind of playing in that sandbox anyway, and he was already doing that kind of stuff, it made sense that, you know, someone like him who, you know, was already kind of working in the sphere of dark fantasy, uh, comic book stuff, it made sense that he would then end up getting to uh, release a lot of his stuff. You know, really. Um, yeah, he he entered the world of children's work with this book, Coraline. Um, he then released another book called The Graveyard Book um, as well. So, yeah, I mean, it really just came from that. So, that's a little bit about the book of how that came to be. So, it's about 210 pages. Um and the plot, I'll give you this, because, again, we won't go over, like, deep, deep in the plot. But, like, Coraline Jones is the main character. She moves into a new apartment with her parents. As a curious and adventurous 11-year-old girl, she um, quickly becomes bored with her new surroundings, even though she has some eccentric neighbors to keep her company. Um, on a rainy day... Um, Coraline becomes interested in a strange door that opens up to a brick wall. The brick wall vanishes the next day and the door leads to a corridor. And when Coraline explores it, she finds that on the other side is a parallel universe that is a mirror image of the one that she just left behind. She finds an alternate version of her new home inhabited by versions of her parents who call themselves her other mother and other father. Her other parents are similar to her parents with one big difference. They have buttons for eyes. Uncertain of her place and the safety of this new world, um, Coraline returns through the door. There she finds that her real parents have gone missing. She decides to go back to the parallel universe and look for them. Coraline recalls what bravery means by uh, remembering a story of where her father rescued her from a swarm of wasps. And Coraline undertakes several brave adventures in the other universe as she battles the evil other mother in a game to save herself, her parents, and more. And she discovers strength with herself um, through these adventures. That's like the big plot you need to know about. Um, so you have Coraline, her mom, Mel, her dad, Charlie, uh, the cat. You then have the Beldum, also known as the other mother and the other father, who's just kind of a pawn to the Beldum. You then have April Sprink and Miriam Forcible, who are the downstairs neighbors. Mr. Bobo, who is Babinski. He lives upstairs. You also have the ghost children as well. Um, so those are kind of our, our big main characters. But that's a little bit about the novella, right? So pretty much what ended up happening was that uh, after this book came out um, and it seemed to do pretty decent um, again, dark fantasy, uh, Henry Selleck met uh, Neil Gaiman just as he was finishing this book. Um, and Gaiman was actually a fan of uh, the nightmare for Christmas as he should be. And he invited him to make a film adaptation. He was like, Hey, I think he'd be a great uh, to do this. As Selleck thought um, a direct adaptation would lead to, quote, maybe a 47-minute movie, his screenplay had some expansions. Um, so actually, he created the a character of YB, which is why he's not in the book, um, who was not present in the original novel. And when looking for a design different um, from that of most animation, he actually discovered the work of Japanese illustrator uh, Tadahiro Usagi and he invited him to become the concept artist, which is why he is. Um, one of Usagi's um, biggest influences was on the color palette, which was muted in reality and then more colorful in the other world, kind of like in The Wizard of Oz. Um, 
the concept artist um, Usogi um, said that, quote, at the beginning, it was supposed to be a small project over a few weeks to simply create characters. However, I ended up working on the project for over a year, eventually designing sets and backgrounds on top of drawing the basic images for the story to be built upon. So Coraline was staged in a 140,000 square foot warehouse in Hillsboro, Oregon. Um, the stage was divided into 50 different lots, um, which played host to nearly 150 sets. Uh, among the sets were three miniature Victorian mansions, a 42 foot apple orchard, and a model of Ashland, Oregon, um, including little tiny details like banners for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Um, and the amazing garden scene was the most complicated um, that was created for the film the hundreds of um, handmade flowers were created to grow and move accordingly for when Coraline entered the garden and more than 28 animators worked at a time on rehearsing and shooting scenes producing 90 to 100 seconds of finished animation each week and to capture uh, stereoscopy for the um, which stereoscopy for those who don't know it's just a technique of creating or enhancing the illusion of depth in an image um so that's what that was. Um, the animators had to each shot uh, each frame um, from two slightly apart like camera positions. Um, and every object on screen was made for the film. So the crew used three 3D printing um, systems uh, from Object in the development and production of the film. So thousands of high quality 3D models ranging from like facial expressions to doorknobs were created printed in 3D using the polyjet matrix system, which enabled uh, the fast transformation of CAD, um, computer-aided design, drawings into three uh, high-quality 3D models. Uh, The puppets had separate parts for the upper and lower parts of the head that could be exchanged for different um, facial expressions, and the characters could exhibit over 208,000 different facial expressions. Um... And then uh, Laika, who is, uh, they're the ones who, like, helped make this movie pretty much. Uh, yeah, there were all sorts of, like, all sorts of cool shit that, you know, like, um, there were, like, 28 different puppets for Coraline. Each one of them took, like, three or four months to make. Um, so, yeah, stop motion is so fucking cool, dude. Um, at the peak of its uh, filming, this film involved the efforts of about 450 people, including 30 to 35 animators and digital designers in what was called the Digital Design Group, DDG, which was directed by Dan Casey and more than 250 technicians and designers. Um, So principal photography for this movie took place over 18 months, and one crew member in um, general, Althea Chrome, was hired specifically to knit miniature sweaters and other clothing for the puppet characters, sometimes using knitting needles as thin um, as human hair. Uh, So that's kind of cool. So yeah, I mean, this movie took a little under two years to uh, make. Um, Henry Selleck is quoted as saying Coraline was a huge risk, but these days animation the safest best bet is to take a risk um and yeah so let me see what else there was oh so in terms of the box office of this movie i already talked about it it ended up doing pretty well so uh paul uh Dergarabidian. wow that's wonderful he's a film <laughs> business analyst he said that uh 
you know, for this movie to do well, it would have to be comparable to what um, Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Werewear did, Were Rabbit did, which um, that grossed about 16 million its opening weekend and made about 192 million dollars worldwide. Um, so before the film's release, um, Paul thought that uh, Leica Studios, quote, should be really pleased uh, where Coraline to make um, $10 million in his opening weekend. So, yeah, it ended up making a pretty good amount of money, really, which is good, as I stated already. And it seems like the critical consensus of this movie from, like, Rotten Tomatoes, it appears that it would be... Uh, with its vivid stop-motion animation combined with Neil Gaiman's imaginative story, Coraline is a film that's both visually stunning and wondrously entertaining. Uh, Roger Ebert actually gave it three out of four stars, uh, calling it a beautiful film about several nasty people, as well as nightmare fodder for children, however brave, under a certain age. Um, David Edelstein said that the film is like a bona fide uh, fairy tale that needed a quote touch less uh entrancement and a touch more story um a.o scott of the new york times called the film exquisitely realized with a slower pace and a more uh contemplative tone than the novel it is certainly exciting um but rather than race through even noisier set pieces towards a hectic climax in the manner of so, um, so much animation aimed at children, Coraline lingers in an atmosphere that is creepy, wonderfully strange, and full of feeling. And this was also nominated for um, the Best Animated Feature at the Oscars. However, it did not win. Let's see what won. I want to know. Hold on just a minute. Wait a minute. Let me look at this real quick. do 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 up one that year. Okay, fair. Ooh, Keith David was in two movies that were Oscar nominated. Good for him. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think this movie has really, if anything, and also right now, as you're hearing this, if I'm not mistaken, it's actually back in theaters, which is kind of fun. So, like, you know, I think you, if you wanted to, you could also watch it that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, at least in this particular situation, you know, I, I won't break down the plot too much, really. I already kind of did anyway. Um, but yeah, generally, it's all of what I already just said. But what ends up happening is that, well, really, I guess I'll just talk about it. So, yeah, Coraline has to adapt to life in the Pink Palace uh, apartments, an old house in Ashland, Oregon, after moving from Pontiac, Michigan. Um, her work at home parents, Charlie and Mel, are preoccupied with completing a gardening catalog. She crosses paths with a black cat and Wyborn, um, or YB Lovett, um, the landlady's grandson, who leaves her a lookalike rag doll. And it leads Coraline to a small door with a brick wall behind it. And that night, a jumping mouse leads Coraline back to the door, which leads her to the other world, which is an alternative um, universe where her parents' button dyed doppelgangers lavish her with a few attention. Um, and then upon waking, Coraline finds that she has returned to the real world. She meets the other residents at the house, the quote, amazing Mr. Babinski or Bobo, um, an eccentric uh, Russian liquidator turned gymnast who owns a mouse circus and retired burlesque performers, April Spring, Spink and Miriam Forcible. 
Bobinski and Mr. Mrs. Spink, um, Miss Spink, uh, warns her about the other world, and YB tells Coraline how his grandmother's sister actually disappeared one day. Um, and so then Coraline though goes back nonetheless. The other YB in this other world who is mute um, accompanies her to watch the other Bobinskis uh dancing circus mice when she returns to the world uh the other world yet again um this time during the day the cat uh arrives and tells her that he can traverse the two worlds and warns her warns her about the other world she watches the other mrs spink and miss forcible perform afterwards the other mother offers to let her stay permanently on the condition that she would have to have her um buttons sewn over her eyes uh and so which horrifies Coraline and she desperately tries to fall asleep but even after waking remains in the other world um when she tries to escape through the door uh this other mother then turns into like an arachnid like form and imprisons her into a mirror uh, in like a dark room and so three ghost children who are also there um talk about how the bell dam who is the other mother uh uses ragdolls ragdolls to spy on them or used ragdolls to spy on them and then uses what she learned to actually lure them into the other world they accepted her invitation to stay and had buttons sewn over their eyes um Coraline can free them by retrieving their eyes after she promises to help them the other yb helps her return home um she can't find her parents forcing her to return to the other world um and she takes this little like Ouija planchette looking thing that kind of shows um, where these eyes are. Um, the cat suggests uh, Coraline uh, proposes a game and if she can find her parents and the three eyes, the beldam will let them all go free. And if not, she'll accept the offer um, to stay forever. Um, as Coraline finds each eye, a part of the other world turns lifeless as the entire dimension gradually disintegrates. Uh, the Beldam assumes her final form, a broken dolled face arachnid, and the ghost of YB's great aunt warns Coraline that the Beldam will not honor her bargain, and Coraline tricks her into opening the door to the real world by claiming that her parents are behind it. Uh, Coraline then throws the cat at her, takes the snow globe with her parents inside of it, and the cat claws out the beldam's eyes she then creates a giant spider's web into the floor and Coraline narrowly escapes throughout through the door severing the beldam's hand which slips through to the real world unnoticed uh the snow globe back home is broken and Coraline's parents are free and they have no recollection of what has just happened but they finish their work and they spend more time with Coraline um and that night the freed ghosts warn Coraline that the beldam is trying to get the key to the small door and when Coraline goes to the well to try to dispose of it the severed hand of the bell dam attacks her trying to drag her back to the other world but then yb smashes it with a rock they throw the fragments and the key into the well and then the next day the pink palace residents come to a party uh yb brings his grandmother so that Coraline can like actually reveal what's happened to her sister and then the movie ends there um but yeah so that's like the the basic plot now, I think with this movie, I mean, there's a lot to kind of say about it or with the characters as well. I mean, I think if anything, like Coraline is somebody who, I mean, she's obviously like, what, 11 years old, I think. So she's a young, young lady. Um, but if anything, I think she, 
I, I think there is a, a darkness to this whole story because the thing with her is that she is kind of just like ignored by her parents, which is really, uh, which is just weird. But you know, um, and I wouldn't say she's neglected necessarily, but I do think like she's just kind of ignored by them and she has to kind of then go find her other, she has to go kind of make her own fun if anything. But then what I think ends up happening or what really ends up happening is that she gets sucked into this other world that really is nefarious and bad. Um, but at first doesn't seem that bad, you know, and she is getting attention and, and all of that. And I think a lot of kids can kind of relate to that, you know, I mean, um, I think I was raised perfectly fine, you know, but like, yeah, when you're a kid, all you really want is like attention from people, you know, and that happens. And, um, whether it's positive or negative attention is something you learn as you grow older. Right. Um, you know, when kids are kids and they don't know how else to act, like you have a temper tantrum because you just are, you know, in this position where nobody's listening to you, nobody's doing what you want. Um, so you have to scream and shout about it. Right. Um, but as you grow older, you see that maybe it's not good to have that kind of, um, it, it's not exactly mature to do that. So, and a lot of kids just want to be older. They want to be more mature. So you have all of that going on. Um, but then having this attention and wanting to get that. And I think that's a really big part of this is, you know, the reason Coraline even ended up going to the other world is because she was not getting the attention um, that she wanted from her parents. Um, and I'm not a parent. I really only know one set of parents, <laughs> you know, Barbie and Mike. Uh, I only really know them like that. Um, my sister does not have children. Um, my mom had me and my sister. So, you know, it's like whatever, but it's, uh, but it's, it's tough to be a parent and you always want to make sure that you're, you're giving your kids as much attention as you can to them, of course, but you know, nobody's perfect and, and, and all of that. So, I don't know, but like, her parents are really just more so, like, they come off as boring, probably because that's how Coraline sees them, right? Because um, this is through her perspective. But, like, really, they're probably just trying their best. I just think that they overlooked their daughter. And, if anything, that put them into a, a bad situation, you know, where they pretty much got usurped. And then, from there, um, you they were able to... It, it was up to their daughter to save them, really. <laughs> so, uh, which is, again, why I think this story is really cool, because the, the, the protagonist is this young girl who makes something out of it, you know, makes something out of this whole situation. Um, and then really, like, the, I think the neighbors are really fun. I really like the downstairs neighbors. They're so flamboyant and weird, um, but I kind of enjoy them. They're, like, retired actresses, so, you know, they're just very silly. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, like, and then also, like, Mr. Babinski upstairs, like, you know, he's just kind of, like, this, this fucking trapeze-ass artist, you know what I mean? And he's just, like, doing his thing, but, like, I don't know. It, it's just they're eccentric characters, if anything. Um, and then also, like, I do enjoy the cat. I like how he goes between both of the worlds. He's also Keith David, of course, so that's amazing, and I love that. But I really just think, like, 
he kind of has the wise, you know, words of this. Um, he, uh, this cat, I'm assuming it's a he, it's a cat, but I mean, whatever. But the cat really does have kind of like the wisest words for Coraline and, you know, really helps her through this whole thing. Um, and I think that's really, that's pretty cool, you know? Um, and, oh, also, I didn't even know this because I just saw it right here. Uh, I guess... So friends, friends of Coraline. So she's these two friends that, you know, are in this picture. Right. And apparently one of the, probably the boy, uh, the boy who is like one of her friends back home. Um, he's actually voiced by Harry Selleck, who I would assume is probably the son of Henry Selleck. So that's kind of fun. Um, but yeah, hmm. George Selleck was one of the ghost children so i guess that was maybe one of another one of his sons does he have sons now i'm curious wait a minute i guess he does he must he, I, I don't think they really tell me about that oh damn it oh whatever i guess he has children he put them in his movies i would probably do the same fucking thing if i had children like that yeah make them work um but I really do think with Coraline, though, I mean, a lot of these characters, it's really all about her, but, like, I think she's such a fascinating character, and, you know, I think, if anything, her whole journey through this movie is really just, you know me, I love a girl who, you know, goes on a journey and ends up being something at the end, ends up changing herself at the end, and I think, if anything what's cool about Coraline is that she is a strong protagonist in this story. You know, she's able to be creative and she's able to understand what's going on and see the kind of peril she's in, but then also be able to save herself and save her parents. And I think if anything, she also learns not that it's like, not that it's like super, I think it is deep in a way, but like it doesn't hit you over the head with it. That really, I think she's way more, she learned the lesson of appreciate what you have right now. You know what I mean? Cause you never know when it can be gone, you know? And I think that's a huge thing that you learn through this whole movie, you know? And I, I think that's pretty, that's pretty good to have be a lesson in a movie and the I think the way that they end up delivering this and the way that they end up having this movie um again it's very dark and whether or not it's actually for kids I I do think it's maybe for just older kids if anything because it's still a PG movie um like this is not going to be no rated R movie or whatever even like Wendell and Wilde which I have not seen like I said but I think that's PG-13 so there must be a little bit something different in there but like really this movie, I think, is just... I, I really do enjoy myself, and I do think it is kind of the perfect gateway. It's one of the perfect gateways to a kid who is interested in in horror, because it's dark fantasy, which really a lot of horror ends up being dark fantasy anyway, if it's not already just like a fucking slasher-ass movie or like, you know, some werewolf or vampire movie. But even that can be like dark fantasy, right? And so, but like slashers are kind of just like, you know, I don't know about fantasy with that, because those are a lot more real than anything, but like is it though like is Jason Voorhees not just like a superhuman you know but anyway but I I think that this is a great this is a great step for kids who are interested in horror to like 
see this movie, kind of see what they think of it, and you know, be able to discover other things as well. Um, because this movie is something that is a little bit darker. Um, it's not the same as like the nightmare for Christmas. Cause that ultimately is not, it, it's dark, but like also like the aesthetic is dark, obviously, but overall, you know, it's not necessarily a thing where, you know, uh, I don't think the nightmare before Christmas is the same as this. This definitely has a little bit of a darker theme in general. Um, so yeah, I think that's just like the big part for me at least is I think this is a great way to introduce a child who might be interested in horror into this. It still looks good. So it doesn't feel dated. Like if you didn't tell me that this was back in 2009 or if I was not there myself, like I wouldn't know, you know what I mean? Like I wouldn't have known at all. And I think that's, what's really cool about any sort of stop motion. And that's, what's I think makes stop motion. So um, timeless to a point is like, yeah, there's obviously some stuff like the, you know, I don't remember the, the company, but like the people who did like Rudolph, the red rose reindeer, that always feels a little bit more dated than anything. Or like, Gumby always feels a little bit dated, I guess, as well. But overall, like, especially with like Nightmare for Christmas, um, something like even Corpse Bride or or um, James and the Giant Peach, you know, a lot of these things that you know, I mean, Henry Selleck was at least a part of the two of those. But you know, just the whole idea that this animation style is truly to me it just feels timeless in a way it just feels like you can have this and it'll always generally look pretty decent and pretty good um which i really like and i i would love to see more stop motion stuff out there because we need more of it you know and it's a it's an industry then it's a uh, an art form that i think needs more stuff for sure same thing with animation i won't get on my animation soapbox or anything but i love animation and i i'm really into that kind of stuff um, not that i'm watching cartoons all the time necessarily uh, but goddamn i wish i was but uh this is not a cartoon podcast though unfortunately but it could be but uh no but i i do like you know like for example i'm trying to figure whether i want to watch um the live action avatar that's on netflix right now but like i was already watching the animated one so like maybe i should just finish that you know um but like I just think like with animation, you can do so much that you cannot do in live action. And I think you're really able to touch into different themes and really explore different things um, that you can't always do in live action and make it look good, you know, but animation a lot of the time always looks good. And also here's the thing too, um, not to shit on Disney, even though they're a giant corporation that owns everything and literally is probably a little bit of the devil, but like, you know, it is what it is, but like, you know, I'm not even like the hugest on Disney animation like that. Really? I'm always interested in a little bit more of stuff that isn't always Disney. Um, I want to see that kind of stuff and I want to see people taking, you know, like Henry Selleck said, I want to see people taking risks. I want to see these different art forms out there because I think it's so rad and it's a lot more, it makes it more, there's a lot more stuff you can deal with or you can explore 
that you can't do in live action. It just doesn't happen. You know, um, I mean, when I did my perfect blue episode, I mean, anime itself, like, I don't even know, like that movie is so goddamn good. And it's an anime, it's anime style. And, there's so much you can dig into with that. That's also why some animes like go on forever and ever. You know what I mean? Some of them like are very much like, you know, it's cowboy bebop is like 26 episodes or like avatar. The last airbender is like the three seasons. You know what I mean? So like it's, I, I'm just a fan of animation <laughs> of like any sort. Um, Cause I just think you can do way more in that medium than you can do in live action. And that's, what's really cool about it. But Enough of me talking about all that. Otherwise, I could just go on about animation all day. But to kind of wrap it all up, though, you know, um, I think when it comes to Coraline in particular, like, I just think this movie is really rad. I've now watched it twice, and I'm glad I've watched it twice. Um, It's just something where now I feel like I'd want to maybe get a physical copy of this and see what, like, fun bonus features are on there, kind of hear what Henry Selleck has to say, and really dive into that kind of stuff and and see what else I could watch from there. Um, Because, really, I am so interested in... You know, I like this story. I think it's a good story. I like that it's a standalone. Um, It didn't feel the need to, like, make any more movies, like, try to make some sort of franchise, you know? Um, Because I also don't think Henry Selleck does that like that, you know? I think he wants to make projects and, you know especially since I think he is, I mean, by the by, I think he's absolutely the, the name when it comes to stop motion animation. And, um, I would just love to see what else there's out there. But I think Coraline is this like really fun kind of gateway horror movie for, for kids in a way. Um, it's this dark fantasy that I think can really, you know, still look good to this day. It still has like, a f- cool message about like, you know, appreciate the things that you have before you don't have them anymore. Um, and I'm just, I really, I really like it, you know? And, and I think you should check it out you know, if you haven't already done so. And um, I think no matter who you are, I think you can kind of get with, with Coraline and what she's doing and her whole journey. If anything, you could also hate it if you want to, I guess too, but I mean, it is what it is. Um, I still like it. So I would definitely recommend it currently right now. It is streaming on um, HBO max. um, So, but it's also, uh, I think it's on Netflix in Canada. Um, It does, I think come to Netflix every so often. So it'll be on the streams every so often, you know, it'll be on there. Um, So definitely check out where it might be in your, in your country or anything like that. Um, But yeah, I'm just so happy to have covered it. Um, It's been 15 years since it came out, which is just wild to me, but it's really cool to be able to, to talk about it and be able to give it the love that I think it definitely does deserve. Um, And yeah, I would really hope that you check it out. But with all that being said, that brings us to the close of our episode on Coraline. So I hope you enjoyed yourself and I hope you liked what I had to say. Um, A bit of a shorter episode. I didn't have much to say about it. Um, 
because I didn't do like a ton of research on it. Um, I did as much as I could just kind of on the fly right now. Um, I'm recording this kind of a little bit, cutting it a little close a little bit, but uh, you know, it's all good. Um, All you need to know is this Coraline's rad. So, (laughs) but with all that being said, um, please, if you haven't already done so, you know, please rate, comment, subscribe on your podcatcher of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, whatever, wherever you get your podcasts, please, please, please. I would love if you just gave um, like a like or you shared uh, my show or or whatever, you know, give me a five-star review, give me five stars and a review, all that good stuff. Uh, you know, it gets more people to see the show. Uh, I've been seeing an influx of people coming and following the Instagram and all that cool stuff um so that's always nice but yeah i mean i i do this because i want to and uh i like covering these movies that i generally hopefully will like um and even if i don't like it i'll tell you what i think of it um speaking of social media you can also follow the cult cinema circle podcast on social media instagram is at cult cinema circle and on twitter uh slash x it's cult cinema circle i don't really post that much on twitter but if you want to follow it it's there i'm also on letterboxd at jesse j-e-s-s-e kremp k-r-e-m-p all one word and on there you'll see like the movies i've been watching you'll see like um you know my i have a little list that i've made or like whatever the hell just fun little stuff here and there. Um, but yeah, go follow me on there if you want to. Um, you may also see what I'm going to be covering on the show. Maybe like you'll see, like you could try to decipher <laughs> or whatever. Um, but in terms of that, please follow me on those social platforms. Uh, and again, you know, if you want to like email me too, you can do that at cult cinema circle at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to just talk to me or you want to like, you know, uh, come on the show or give me recommendations. You know, you can do that through email or on social media, I guess, if you want to as well. That always it works as well. Um, and with all that being said, we then have our next week. So uh, next week, you're going to be hearing about a little movie uh, that is also celebrating an anniversary this year. You notice, and I will keep saying it, you'll notice a lot of anniversaries coming up because it is the year of our Lord, uh, 25 years since 1999. So a lot of those movies coming out and uh, getting a lot more attention, which is always cool. Um, but next week we're going to be covering a little movie from 1999 and it is, uh, a movie I've only seen once and I'm, uh, quote excited to see it again i guess um, i did like this movie and i still think i like it um we're gonna be covering audition by takashi Miike next week uh if you don't know what audition is about it's a japanese horror film um it's about a man who um ayoyama he is uh his wife died pretty much and he's looking to find a new girlfriend he sets up this audition and he meets a girl by the name of asami um and some stuff just happens and you'll hear a lot more about that next week (laughs) um but yeah uh audition is a wild ride uh please you know do yourself a favor and you know, <laughs> do yourself a favor and look up anything, um, you know, trigger warnings or anything. This is a this is an extreme, extreme quote horror movie, if you will. Um, it's not for the, the faint of heart, maybe, perhaps. Uh, but for me, I'm pulling right the fuck up um, and I'm going to watch this again. So, uh, yeah, definitely 
be on the lookout for my audition episode. This is also another thing that was a book. <laughs> Again, it just tends to happen that way. But yeah. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. And remember, they say even the proudest spirit can be broken with love. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Bye.